So today's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 and I'm reading from an IV. Please follow through. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Jerubabel, Jerubabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Amen. Uh, thank, thank you, um, uh, Andis, uh, for praying and, and leading. Thanks, uh, uh, Klaus, for uh, leading the music so well. Uh, thanks as well, uh, as um, Andis was saying to uh, Nissi for, for reading. I did give him the advice. Uh, I think everything does sound a little bit more authentic if you put a bit of behind it. So if you say Abraham, it suddenly sounds like you know what you're talking about. But um, I don't know how correct that is, but... Uh, but uh, a hint for it. Um, you're probably looking at the passage today and going, oh my goodness, how are we, what are we going to do for the next little time? But hopefully uh, there, is, there is some really interesting stuff in here. Uh, hopefully you can have Matthew open. And, uh, and, and this, as Anders said, is part of our um, uh, Advent series. So this is the first talk in the Advent series. And uh, we really uh, learn about the promise of a king and how God brings through that promise through the generations. Now, all four of the Advent talks will be in Matthew. And um, uh, the Gospel according to Matthew is one of the earliest accounts that we have of uh, Jesus' life. We don't really know who the author is, but uh, most will assume that it's Matthew the tax collector, one of Jesus' disciples. Now, the book is great for us because it focuses on primarily the promised Messiah, uh, the promised King. 
Now, in this Advent series, uh, it's a great time to bring your friends. Uh, It's a great time to remind ourselves of the Christmas story. And if you're new here, do stay around for the uh, next three weeks as well uh, to hear the Christmas story unfold and for us to see more of the implications of the Christmas story to our lives. But as I was uh, reading this big list of names, what it did remind me of is is looking at other people's photos. Now, I I do like looking at other people's photos. I know some people are tortured by it, but I do like it. Well, let me qualify. I I like looking at travel photos uh, to see where people have been, what the culture's like there, what, what the food is like, what the experience, maybe hearing some of the history and geography of the place. Um, but but what, what I don't like, and I think most of us don't like, is being caught in a room where you're being shown family photos. Oh, and here's Auntie Jane, and there's Sam, and there's little Esmeralda, and there's little Wendy. And you're like, I don't know who these people are. This is torture. And then there's another photo with the same people, but they've just moved around, and, you know, now someone's smiling. But I'll bet that Uncle Jack's got his eyes shut in this photo. And it's like torture. So I have a life, a life rule here. Uh, my life rule is please don't show me your family photos of your relatives. Um, but I have three exceptions to this rule. Uh, the first except, ex- exception is I think when they're the family of someone uh, you're interested in, so they're the family of your partner, and you look at this family and it has a different life to it, doesn't it? Because these people are important to someone that you're interested in. And so that Auntie Jane and Wendy and Esmeralda and all of those, suddenly they take on a different life because you see them through your your partner's uh, view. Another exception, I think, is when you look back at your own youth. So when you look at the photos and you think, yeah, I remember that, but I remember it from a child's viewpoint. But now I'm seeing it as an adult and it's, it's quite different. And the third exception, I think, is, is when it's your own ancestors. So when it's your own people, when you, when you hear from your grandparents and they have pictures maybe of their grandparents or their parents, and you sort of understand where your family has come from and uh, where, where you, you have come from and what you've inherited from these people and what has been passed down to you. Now, the genealogy today is a little bit like that. At first, we can feel bored and disinterested, like, really, Andre, come on, let's just move on to the bit where we've got uh, Mary and Mary and Joseph and the donkey and the three wise men. Let's get to the interesting stuff. But it helps us as Christians to know where we've come from. And more importantly, it helps Jews and Christians trace back God's faithfulness to his promises and God's faithfulness throughout time to help bring about his promised king. So let's move back even further than Matthew's genealogy and let's move back way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And here we see in God's, in chapter 3, God's judgment on Adam and Eve. Let me read from chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. 
You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, it happens so subtly, you may have missed some of the big things in this passage. But let me point it out. Firstly, enmity between the snake and the woman and her offspring. Now, enmity is a fancy pants way of saying opposition and hostility. So there's going to be a hostility between Adam and Eve's offspring and the serpent or the devil. But the snake will strike the heel of the one of woman's offspring, but the offspring will crush his head. So somewhere down the line, <clears throat> sorry, one of Eve's children will actually lead to the serpent being crushed, but he will be struck in the same process. <clears throat> so previously, the Jews were looking for this serpent crusher. So from Adam and Eve, they are looking for the anointed one. Now, in ancient Greek, the word is Christ. So Jesus Christ, Christ is not a surname, but it's a title, the anointed one. And the Hebrews use the terms Messiah for the same thing. So they are looking for this Messiah, and they're looking for this in, in Adam's, Adam and Eve's family tree. And so they think, look, Abel, he looks really great. He starts off well, he does really good um, uh, sacrifices, but he's killed by his brother Cain. So that wipes them off the list. So we look at Seth, and we have this guy called Enoch, who is that amazing that he actually doesn't die, but God takes him away. Some Mysteriously, two people in the Bible that don't die. Um, thanks very much, Robert. Um, and, but it's not him because he's taken away. And we move down the line, and it's Noah. I mean, Noah, how good does Noah look? I mean, he builds this ark in the middle of a desert, you know, no one, no one believes, and he saves, he saves humanity and he saves a bunch of animals as well. So Peter's happy as well as humanity. But the first thing he does after he gets off the ark, he plants a vineyard, he grows grapes, he ferments the grapes, um, makes wine and absolutely gets plastered. So it's not Noah. So we come to Abraham. And Abraham is the first on our list if you, if you have uh, Matthew open. And so Matthew, who's writing to the Jews, would assume that the reader would know about all these other people that came through Abraham. And he's going, okay, Abraham, this is where we are now starting. And so Abraham, who starts off with the, with the name Abram, and Abram actually means, funnily enough, daddy. Okay, but, but God comes to Abram in, when he's 75 and his wife is 78 and he gives them this promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and... All peoples on earth, that includes us, will be blessed through you. But this guy called Daddy, 75 years old, has no kids. So how is this going to ha happen? A few chapters later in Genesis 15, God again reaffirms this promise. 
At this point, Abraham is 99 and his, his wife is over 100. And, and God tells him to change his name to Abraham, which basically means big daddy. So you could just imagine him walking around the village and everyone's going, hey, big daddy, how many kids do you have? You know, I've got a dozen. Maybe I should change my name to big daddy. You know, but God keeps to his promises. God gives him a son. And you see, God slowly as well teaches us about what the Messiah is going to be like. Because in Genesis, Abraham is asked to take his one and only son up onto a hill. The son carries wood on his back and is going to be sacrificed to show his, um, to show his faith in God. Thankfully, he doesn't. But again, God is teaching us what to look for. So Abraham isn't the Messiah. But what about his son, Isaac? In Genesis 12, 3, God uh, promised to Isaac. Uh, sorry, it's not 12, 3. But in Genesis, we've got the thing. For you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. But Isaac plays favorites. So he's not the promised king. Now, Isaac has a son, Jacob, who has a bunch of kids. He even changes his name to Israel, but he has a bunch of wives as well. He plays favorites, and one of his kids, Joseph, you may have seen the kids' movie, uh, The Prince of Egypt, um, and God uses Joseph later on to deliver the whole nation out of slavery. But Jacob dies and before he dies, he leaves another prophecy in Genesis 49 that a king, a lion, will come through one of his sons, Judah. So it looks like it might be Judah who's going to be this lion, but it's not Judah because he acts terribly. But wait a second. If you have your finger open in Matthew 1, you will see a, a, a woman mentioned here. Now, this is not shocking for us in modern day times, but in ancient genealogies, women were never mentioned in the genealogy. So it's a shock that Matthew actually mentions a, a woman here. In fact, he mentions five women. And so we're going to look at these women because it's something out of the ordinary and it helps teach us about the Messiah and about who he's going to, who he's going to be like and what is the promised king going to be like. But first, let's start with the first one, who is Tamar in verse 3. Now, this is a bit of an 18-plus story, so I'm looking around. Any kids need to sh uh, shut their ears uh, because it's unbelievable. Uh, if, you saw, if you saw it in a movie, you would think it's, it could never happen. But basically, it starts off all well. Judah is probably thinking, you know, it's, he's getting old. It's probably not going to be me, but my kids it's death. The Messiah is probably going to be one of my kids. And his eldest son, Ur, you know, I'm not, I'm not mumbling. That's his name, Ur. He marries Tamar. Um, and unfortunately, Ur is really evil. So God kills him off before he has any children. So in according to Jewish law, Tamar has to marry Ur's brother, Onan. 
Now, but Onan realizes that his first son actually belongs to his dead brother and will get all the inheritance. So he practices a coitus interruptus, which is spilling his semen on the ground, so that he wouldn't have any children. God, of course, doesn't like this. So he dies as well. Now Judah is thinking he's got a little young son left. There is no way he is giving this young to Tamar. So he sends Tamar back to her family. Uh, so maybe she can forget about this whole keep marrying the brother thing. Now later on, <clears throat> what happens is Shelah, his, his youngest son, starts to grow up. And in this time, Judah's own wife dies. And he goes off to mourn to a place called Timnath. Now Tamar hears about this. And what she does is she goes ahead where she knows Judah will walk and she plays the harlot. She gets dressed up like a prostitute, knowing that Judah might pick her up. She has a child by Judah. Now, Judah doesn't know it's Tamar at this point, but he hears that Tamar is going to have a child. So what he does he actually says that she should be sentenced to death. But Tamar is quite smart in all of this. During the time that she was with Judah, she, she, she got his staff and his signet ring as collateral. And she sends these back to Judah and says, I am pregnant to the man who owns these. Judah now realizes that he has slept with his daughter-in-law and the child is his. But what we see here is, is God turns something quite evil and quite unbelievable around to bring about the good, to keep bringing about his promised king. Now, the next two women mentioned concern Boaz. Now, the first is his mother Rahab in verse 5, who was a prostitute in Jericho, and she hitched her hopes her future hopes on Israel to save herself and her family from death. She hides the uh, Israelite spies and sends the, uh, the Jericho guards off in the wrong direction so they wouldn't find them. And as a consequence, she is saved. But you can imagine this kind of skeleton in Boaz's, uh, Boaz's closet. You know, ah, oh, your mum, she was a prostitute. And so Boaz is still a bachelor, quite, quite, uh, quite old, uh, quite further on in his years. And, um, and this brings along the next female, Ruth, the Moabitist. So the Moabitess. And she is a foreigner so cool that she, in fact, has a whole book in the Bible written about her. And we often quote what she says at weddings still now. In the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16, she says, when her, when her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, look, go back to your own people, she says, no, I will stick with you, Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. <clears throat> so just to put this in perspective, the women of Moab were the ones that previously led all of Israel astray. Yet here, God uses the unlikely to bring about his promised king. <clears throat> so Ruth was David's grandmother. And likely, as grandmothers often are in our upbringing, pivotal for David taking on his faith. <clears throat> so it looks like David is going to be the promised king. He kills Goliath early on, on when he's still a young boy. He's faithful to Saul and never kills Saul. He's even written a bunch of psalms and a bunch of messianic psalms which parallel beautifully with Jesus' life. David is the king that future kings will be measured by, but he's not the serpent crusher. As his generals are out fighting and David is at home bored, he thinks with a certain part of his anatomy and Matthew here mentions Uriah's wife. He doesn't use her name, Bathsheba, but Uriah's wife in verse 6. Now, David's palace in Jerusalem overlooks a lot of the houses, and he notices Bathsheba bathing naked on her roof. He calls her to him. He commits adultery. And eventually, to hide her pregnancy, he sets it up so that her husband dies. He marries her and tries to hide this sin. But Nathan, the prophet, confronts him. David repents, but he sets in motion a series of events that will tear his family apart. So David is not the promised king. But he gets a prophecy from Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. Sorry. <coughs> 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. So note, there will still be a king born from David's line who will be the promised king forever, who will be punished <clears throat> by men with floggings and a rod by carrying sin. Sound familiar? So Bathsheba's son becomes the next king, the great Solomon, the wisest man. But he accumulates wives and concubines. He's led astray. From Solomon, then, we have a list of kings before the exile. And we have the good, we have the bad, and we have the ugly. All leading to the promised Messiah. So who are some of the good guys? Some of the good guys, well, men like David. 
Despite their failures and despite not finishing best, they have God first in their heart. Despite mistakes and consequences, they trust in God and trust in God's promises. We have in verse 9 Hezekiah, a righteous king who fought for Israel to solely worship God. He cleaned out the temple. He tried to get all the Israelite tribes to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, leading to the biggest Passover celebration since Solomon. His faithfulness even saves Israel from a huge army which is at their doorstep. And his righteous prayer leads to extra lives and extra time for him in his office. We have men like Josiah, verse 10, a righteous king who walked in the way of David. He became a king at the age of eight. Can you believe it? At the age of eight. And started seeking God at that early age. He rediscovered the book of the law, probably what we now think as the book of Deuteronomy, which had been somewhere pushed under the dust in the temple. And he wanted everyone to hear the words of this book. He renovated the temple. He destroyed the altars to other gods and images of false gods. And he brought about peace. Is he the promised king? No, he died fighting the Egyptians against the advice of God. But in Jesus' family tree, we also have some bad kings. We have Solomon's son, Rehoboam, whose pride led to Israel being torn in half, with ten tribes being split off to the north and two tribes, Judah and, and Benjamin, down south around Jerusalem. We have Ammon, who set up pagan images and tried to lead people into idolatry. Ammon, for his evil, was assassinated after only two years in his office. He walked an evil path, as did his father Manasseh. And so we have the good, the bad, but we also have the ugly. His father, Manasseh, was evil, but he repented in his old age and came back to God. Manasseh, in verse 10, was certainly a piece of work. He restored worshipping Baal and Ashtoreth as an Israelite pastime. He rebuilt shrines that his father had destroyed. He even sacrificed his own children to the god of Moloch. He killed and tortured prophets he, uh, who came to help him. And all of this led to his own captivity with the Assyrians, where in terrible conditions he repented of his sins. God brought him back to his throne and he removed the foreign idols that he had put there, put in Israel. So he was someone who committed terrible sins, but God brought him to repentance. He granted a changed man forgiveness. Unfortunately, it was his evil that his son Ammon never repented of. So each of these people in Matthew had real lives. They struggled with sin and temptation as we do. They struggled with serving God and yet God used them with all their weaknesses to bring about his promised king. 
But we can learn a lot more about genealogies by looking at some of the subtleties. So we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty now. So if you put your thinking caps on, uh, we, it's going to get a little bit complicated. Now, as I mentioned before, the family tree is important to Jews, even nowadays. Just as Ancestry.com is important to many, uh, many other uh, non-Jewish people. However, if, you, if you're Jewish, it's Im particularly important to remember regularly where you have come from. So I remember I worked at a Christian school in Australia, and there was a Messianic Jew who came and talked to us once. A Messianic Jew is a Jew who's now become Christian. And he was saying they celebrated the Passover every year, and every year they would pull out the family scroll and look back their family tree. And the family tree, how they are all connected down the line to Abraham. Now, in the New Testament, we have Matthew's genealogy, but we also have another genealogy uh, by Luke. Now, if you carefully uh, examine both of these, you will find that from David on, they are different. Now, is that a mistake in the Bible? Like, how can Jesus have two different genealogies? <clears throat> now, you see what's happening <clears throat> is <clears throat> Matthew is focusing on Jacob's genealogy, which is Jesus's legal genealogy by adoption. Luke focuses on the fifth woman mentioned in Matthew, Mary, and her genealogy, which is Jesus's actual lineage by birth. If you look in Luke, you will see Mary's, uh, so if you look very closely in Luke, uh, where, where Mary's genealogy diverge, diverges, you will notice that it's Nathan, David's son, uh, where, where we trace Mary's genealogy, not Solomon, the royal line. However, we read in Luke 3.23, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So how do we know this actual genealogy is about Mary? You see, as I mentioned previously, ancient genealogies didn't mention women and always traced the genealogy through the father. But interestingly, with Israelites now, somewhere around the time of Jesus, they uh, uh, um, ascribe their Jewishness to the mother, not the father. Uh, and when we were in Israel recently, they said it's because you can't be 100% sure about the father. But anyway. But this phrase, so it was thought in Luke, is very important because it gives us the hint that it's not Joseph's genealogy, but in fact it's Mary's, since, of course, the virgin birth complicates all of this. So Luke follows the proper form and doesn't include women anywhere but gives us the hint that actually we're following the, the family tree of Mary. But I digress for a moment. Keep that, keep that with you. Back to Matthew. <clears throat> so although Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, 
The fact that Jesus is Joseph's adopted son means that Jesus has all the same rights as if he was actually born to Joseph, which includes the royal genealogy, which includes the promises to David, the promises to Isaac, the promises um, way back of the serpent crusher. I guess it's a bit like all Christians are children who have been adopted in Abraham's life, a line. And through Jesus' sacrifice, we are sons and daughters of God, giving us the same rights as a child of God. Now, Matthew is an ordered writer, and Matthew points out that there is a pattern to the genealogy in verse 17. You see, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon, and there are 14 generations from the captivity in Babylon until Christ. However, if you are sitting at home one day in the holidays and you're really bored and you want to check Matthew's genealogy with Kings and Chronicles, what you will find is there are some missing names. Now, is this another potential error in Matthew? No. Just like with Luke's genealogy, there's an answer. Matthew is making it easier for someone to memorize the genealogy. And in fact, in ancient genealogies, there are two things that we don't do anymore in the family tree. The first is sometimes some generations are left out. So the genealogy might skip some people. The other thing is sometimes one person might seem, or a dynasty might seem like one person, uh, like a single person. So, for instance, the Qing dynasty in China lasted between 1644 and 1911, which meant that there wasn't actually a guy called Qing who lived for almost 300 years. But that's a hot potato that I'll leave for another time, which has potential implications for other parts. But let me digress again and, le and, and let me ask you to raise your hand if you have seen the play, Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. Has anyone, anyone seen that? Okay, a couple of people on the sides. A few people like, oh, where is, where is Andes going with this? Anyway, bear with me. Bear with me because it will be clear in a second. Now, in the Shakespeare play, Macbeth, there is a Scottish general called, funnily enough, Macbeth. And he gets a prophecy that one day he will be the king of Scotland. Now, this sets into emotion a terrible thing where he and his wife brutally murder the actual current king of Scotland, King Duncan. Now, he becomes king over Scotland, as with the prophecy, but there is another part of the prophecy. The other part is that he cannot be killed by one of a woman born. And so he's fighting with the knowledge that he can't be killed because he can't be killed by one of women born. But in the final battle, he battles someone called Macduff. Now, Macduff declares during the fight, you know, it's like in the movies, they take a moment to have a quick little monologue, that I am not one of women born because I was ripped in an untimely way. He's saying that he was born by Caesar, not of woman born which means he could actually kill Macbeth. And he technically 
fulfills the prophecy. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's interesting to note one of the people that Matthew actually has left out in Jesus' family tree as is Yehoiakim, or Yehoiakim, to make it sound a bit better, who came between Josiah and Jeconiah in verse 11. Now, we can read about him, if you want to jot it down, in 2 Chronicles 36, 5 to 8, but this guy was really evil. He did absolutely evil and detestable things, so much so that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, brought a curse on him and his family. And that he and his children, that is his blood descendants, would never sit on David's throne. No one would be a king following down from his actual children. But wait a second. So we have this prophecy from David that says that there will be a king from David's line. And we have a prophecy that there can't be a king now on this same line. How can Jesus then be the king of kings? Well, Jesus, as we remember, is adopted by his father. So he gets the rights of actually being a king and actual, uh, the rights of what the, uh, the heritage involves. But because he is not in the bloodline of Joseph, he actually can still be the promised king. Can we see how that fits together? I know it's a, no, it's a complicated, complicated point. But just to make it clear, Matthew points out in verse 16 that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised king that we've been waiting for. But wait, we can dig a little bit further into this genealogy business to find out a little bit more about Jesus. We might remember um, that Mary, and you might remember from Luke, it talks about Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is a Levite. And the Levites are the only Jewish tribe that can actually be priests. So we can see that Mary was from the tribe of Judah by her father, but she is a Levite by her mother, which means that Jesus actually inherits both of these. It means Jesus can be king, our king, the king of kings and lord of lords, because he is descended from Judah. And it means that Jesus can also be a priest, the one who can offer sacrifices, the one who gave himself on that cross for all of our sins because Jesus is also descended from Levi. In Genesis, Joseph, the one with the technicolor uh, coat, says to his brothers who wanted to kill him and who sent him off to slavery, he said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We see Jesus' family tree contains murderers, adulterers, kings who sacrifice their own children. 
people who worship false gods. And there are some good guys, but they're not perfect either. But God uses it for the good. He uses it so that his only son, just like Isaac and Abraham, God himself could die on a cross 2,000 years ago on a dusty hill near Jerusalem, the perfect sacrifice for our sins from someone who is both a king and a priest. And he doesn't just carry the sins of Israel, but as we saw in the promise to Abraham, the sins of all nations. God used this line of misfits to bring about his plan to crush the serpent that we heard about right at the beginning and to glorify Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who one day will return to judge and finally bring about peace. This is who we remember at Christmas. Not just a little baby, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God himself becoming flesh. Matthew has taken pains to show that Jesus has the correct lineage to be the promised king. Jesus is calling to all of us now. Despite the fact that you might have skeletons in your closet, despite the fact that you may feel that you are not good enough and that you do things wrong and make mistakes, you haven't done anything that wasn't in Jesus' family tree. Jesus is calling to your friends to have faith in him, to see the burden of their sins lifted this Christmas. He is calling to you to fully give your life so that your sins will also be nailed on, the, nailed on that tree by Jesus' blood, the serpent crusher, God's promised king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the richness of information we get about Jesus from the genealogy and that you have kept your promises and word over generations and millennia to bring to earth the promised king, Jesus. May we all during this Advent time come to our King and Saviour, thankful to you for the best Christmas present ever, your promised King. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.